I'm asking you today to hear the word with your heart. And if by chance this is your first time to hear me preach, well then you'll have to just run and jump on the train that's already been moving for a while. You can make it. Are you ready? Something on the inside. It's hard to read from the outside. Not all of my tears are born in anguish. I'm just coming to the knowledge of something. And I want to share it with you today. Something on the inside. It's very difficult to read on the outside. Philippians chapter 3 verse 4 and I'll read a few verses here. Paul writes though I might also have confidence in the flesh it's his rebuttal. If any other man thinks that he has that he can trust. If you think you have something, I I have more. Let me list them for you. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count. All things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. All things for the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, to whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. I want to talk to you today about gains and losses. Amen. Father, add a blessing to the word. Thank you for the believers and the lives of the people. Help me to join in this commonwealth, heirs of the body of Jesus Christ. I pray for the people from my own heart that we would hear this with something more than our external senses. That the spirit you've put inside of us would help us to hear it and receive it. May it minister grace into the hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you for standing.
for our sake, a little context. Paul is writing to the saints, the church in Philippi. My Jewish friend, Hezi, called it Philippi. So, I'm not sure now if I should say Philippi or Philippi. Either way, he's dealing with some men who sought to disrupt the church there. Men who preyed upon the minds of weaker members of the church. Those were men who sought to use their standing to cause a division. They esteemed themselves. Paul hears of their distorted doctrine and it provokes him to reply to them. And here it is. Just a couple of verses to combat those who boast of themselves. Paul will say, I have more reason. Paul will establish his own credentials as he builds his case. In that narrative comes a greater revelation, or maybe we might say an admittance of something far deeper than his initial pursuit to establish himself. Don't lose that for a moment. So it was greater than just revealing his past, but there's something that happens at the end there. Let me say this again. Paul is dealing with troublemakers. They boast of themselves. So he offers his own standing. What he did before. His past accomplishments. His fervency. His capacity is far superior than those who are attempting to corrupt the believers in Philippi. His is a litany of qualifications. Maybe a little hard for us to comprehend their significance because... We don't relate to them. That the people that heard Paul or read Paul, they caught it better than us. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which was the protocol for every new Jewish parent. It was the protocol set forth. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Which simply meant that his parents were devout followers of the law of Moses. He had good parents. Then Paul speaks of his placement among the tribe of Benjamin. His lineage is that of Rachel, the last son of Jacob. There he is, Benjamin. He is from the twelve original tribes of Israel, of the stock of Israel. He has a deep root, deep A couple thousand years old, he reaches back. Paul speaks of being a Hebrew among Hebrews and Hebrew among Hebrews, which implies that no one dressed more like a Hebrew than he did. No one ate their food more properly than he did. No one knew their history like he knew it. He could out-Hebrew the Hebrew. Then he says, as touching the law, Now comes the arduous task of the law. We don't get this. The weight of it. 
They all knew the heavy load that the law brought. You think that a holiness church has boundaries? <laughs> Does anyone think that this is a hard task to live separate from the world? You have no idea what the law was. It was a heavy load. Paul said that his strict adherence to the law stretched far beyond the deeds of his parents. He was blameless in that. None of us know what it took to follow the law of Moses. Paul said he was blameless. Paul then reflected on the day when he was a Pharisee. He had joined the elite of those religious aristocrats, in particular the untouchables. Mm -hmm. Paul said, if you want to talk about zeal, fervency, passion, I persecuted the church. It invoked something there. To me, the statement seems out of sync with the others. He pauses to recount what he did in the name of God against the very church of God. There's almost a gasp in the prose. The imagery of what he had done rushes to the surface now. Paul leaves nothing out. What he did right, what he did wrong. He did both with all of his might. Paul lays it all out. But at the end of his two-verse qualification of boasting... He summarily dis dismantles it and he says, what things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul was an educated man. He was educated by the brightest of minds. He conversed with kings and magistrates, philosophers and teachers. In his apologetic forums, he would quote from their secular teachers and writers just to prove the gospel and the deity of Jesus Christ. He knew his opponents' questions before they even asked them. He knew where they were going. He could cut them off of the pass. He was skilled. He had been on their side before. But now Paul recounts all things gained. He will reflect on his own life. He said to the Philippians, I'm so grateful for you. I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's been a long road for Paul. So many midnight scriptural studies, long hours of teaching, long hours of debate, the untold sermons of Paul. We might call them revivals in our time, the restoring of Israel to the Messiah, so many things. He saw and performed more miracles than we know. Of course, through the Holy Ghost, the Bible's pages could not recount all the things that happened in Paul's life. He reflecting, he's reflecting on his missionary journeys and the missions, the churches that he established. Perhaps there was no witness like him, no leader, disciple maker, Bible writer, prophetic revelator, insightful church planter like Paul. The Philippians are given this beautiful letter, this book, this writing from this profound apostle. I'll break it down for you quickly. Chapter 1 is the joy of suffering. Chapter 2 is the joy of serving. Chapter 3 is the joy in believing. Chapter 4 finally is the joy in giving. But I have a difficult time reading this book without the image of how Paul wrote it. To me, it's not a cold page of instructions because Paul writes it all the while bound in prison in Rome. Paul was thinking of the church in that Macedonian city. He wrote to all the faithful saints at Philippi. He's no longer a young man. He's aged. 
He's experienced extreme poverty. The beatings that were inflicted on his body, the stonings left for dead. He even said at one point, I was cold and naked, hungry and in peril. All of his travels, the burdens that he carried throughout have now finally caught up with him. He had enemies like Alexander the coppersmith. He had fellow ministers that backslid like Demas. He had sons in the gospel like Timothy. Asia Minor had his fingerprints all over it. All the gains were laid out before him and now all the loss. He's in a prison made for criminals. It's confining space with attending guards. The ration of his food is akin to those who have committed crimes against the empire of Rome. Some historians depict him trapped by the sights and sounds of worthy prisoners. The smell of raw sewage permeates his space. There is no reprieve. But from that place comes this letter which has been guide to a million people over. Countless sermons and lessons have been lifted from this God-breathed book written by the hand of this prisoner, Paul. It did not come from the peak of his influential prowess. It did not come at the beginning or when he was on top of everything. It came when there was nothing left. And therein lies the depth of what the Spirit wants to say to us today. Gains and losses. I look back over my shoulder to the Old Testament and see David as he sets the stage for his son Solomon. Solomon accumulated massive wealth. Yes, he did. But he did not begin empty-handed. He was a trust fund baby. He was rich at birth. He was a prince at birth. It was all set up for him. David had been gathering money and wealth for a long time. Of course, Solomon will gain more than anyone could ever imagine. But the handoff of faithful worship from father to son, from David to Solomon, did not turn out the way they thought it would. Solomon exploded in influence and then came with gold and jewels. The wealth of the world lay at his feet. And yet Solomon's immense gain caused him to drift away from the statutes of the Lord. Even with all of his wisdom, all of his astute learning and delineation of plants and foods and medicines and the cumulative knowledge by which he ordered the kingdom, so many gains, too numerous to count, something was missing. He brokered with kings from all over the known world. He ruled with authority and grandeur. Jerusalem became the dominant city upon which he purveyed gold. But his gain damaged him in ways that only he could describe. He did so in his book of Ecclesiastes. That book was written at the end of his life. Like Philippians. Kings and queens came to see him. His gain once caused the visiting queen of Sheba to almost faint. She became lightheaded. The Bible said that it literally took her breath away. The opulence of his servants far exceeded the royalty of the known world. But in the end, after Solomon had accumulated it all, all of it, Solomon dismissed it as nothing. He said, vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless, all of it, meaningless. All that gain was not near as precious as the knowledge of the Lord. I do wonder about gain and how it has affected our lives. The modern church has evolved over the last several decades, a very short 100 years since Azusa Street. 
We were on the back side of the track, ladies and gentlemen. Mostly back road folk. We changed from being Pentecostal castaways to a more astute group of educated sophisticates. Some of us might reject that notion of being sophisticated, but compared with all-night prayer meetings and people rolling on the floor, there was a reason why they called us holy rollers back in the day. Laying on the floor, speaking in tongues for hours at a time. Worshiping on dirt floors. Preaching in sanctuaries without air conditioning. Pot-belly stoves in the corner to heat the building. We are more wealthy and more educated than we've ever been before. We have more things than we used to. Much gain. There used to be a time when we all read one Bible. It was just one version. The King James Bible. If you were spiritual, you'd even use King James English. All the tongues interpretation were in King James. As if God spoke with an ETH at the end of all of his words. That's just how it was. If you were lucky enough later on to own a large, massive, 10 pound green concordance, you might be able to manage some referencing. But now, access to the Bible is everywhere. Study helps are everywhere. Hebrew and Greek words are explained everywhere. All of your smartphones have little tabs, little app, Bible apps are free. But our gain in access to the scripture has not resulted in more reading or more study. Instead, we look for the cliff notes or someone to summarize it for us. Spoon-fed people are almost always malnourished. I don't know how I'm going to do this twice today. The Pentecostals used to be filled with intercessors. But our gain gave us more church diagnostic specialists. Everybody knows what's wrong with the church. You see, with gain, with advances, even refinement comes criticism and complacency. Servanthood is virtually dead. Instead of being thankful and yearning, our expectations created a cavity that's never filled. I'm standing here hungry to get back to basic Christian living. And I'm burdened by my own struggle and my own family and your family. Because when we had less, we had more. The Bible says that to much given, much is required. But that much might be a responsibility that many are ill-equipped to handle. To be clear, gain does not mean that we are dishonest or impure. No, it does not. Gain does not have to be a curse. But it's a lot easier to be desperate for God when you have nothing Gain does not mean that worship is lost or thanksgiving is gone. But when you get used to padded seats, it's hard to kneel at a concrete altar. Gain doesn't have to steal your fervency or your passion. But I've cried out to God more when I stumbled than when I stood. 
I'm standing here today as a burdened man. Losses have reshaped me more than any gain, more than all of my gain. The loss of church members. Regardless of how they left or whose fault it was, it's made my heart bleed. I wake up in the night seeing their faces. My own mistakes and regrets, things I wish I could go back and undo or do over. Those things have caused me to seek God more than anything that's ever been afforded to me. The word of God is described as a scalpel, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're preaching it, yes. But if it's not used correctly, it can cut people the wrong way, even cut them down to size or cut them off. It's almost impossible to preach and teach 3,000 sermons and lessons and not cut the wrong way. Maybe that's why Paul said there shouldn't be many teachers among you. Be careful. Everyone ought to teach the scripture, but tell people how to live. Boy, that's a, that's a, that's a job you don't want. Gains and losses. I'm grateful for buildings, the buses, the nice parking lot. I'm glad that all your high heels don't, don't get messed up walking on gravel. I can remember days when the ladies used to carry their high heels across the gravel parking lot back home until they got to the church building. Then they put on their, their heels. You men don't know anything about that. You have no idea what that is. I don't either. All I know is I was tired of buying shoes. <laughs> I'm grateful for the tools. God gave us the tools. But in the blessing resides a snare. There's always a lying in wait snare hiding in the blessing. Pride, self-sufficiency, a haughty spirit, self-reliance. Our gains may have left, left us with less, not more. And I'm carrying a burden of much. I'm not alone. I'm not looking for an out, but I'm not alone. It's just that the American church is suffering in ways they can't even understand. Even those who come to this house really don't know how good we have it. A hiccup here or there causes a reaction that should be reserved for more serious matters. People get disturbed over little things that mean nothing. The American church has become so spoiled, we don't even know what the rest of the world is going through. People who are starving aren't worried about the temperature of their food. But when you have more than enough, you begin to critique the lesser things. We are so blessed, we just don't know how blessed we are. Uh, my research comes from several sources. I can't name them all. Jason Casper, the WWL, which is the world watch list that measures religious freedoms. There's so many. Open Doors USA. There's another group. U.S. State Department, Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. I won't list them all. But here it is. As of January 15th of this year, 2020, every day, eight Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every week, 182 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. And every month, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly. 
reports from the top 50 countries where Christians are mostly persecuted for simply being Christian, the list is comprised of 260 Christians suffering high to severe levels of persecution. That's up from 245 million in the last year's report. This is a list of where it's hardest to follow Jesus. Number one, the country where it's very difficult to follow Jesus, North Korea. Number two, Afghanistan. Three, Somalia, then Libya, Pakistan, Erika, or at the Horn of Afri- Africa, Sudan, which is right next to, to uh, Etria, uh, then Yemen, Iran, India. It's very difficult to be a Christian there. Another 50 million could be added from the 23 nations that just fall just outside of the top 50, such as Mexico, Chad, the Dominican Republic, uh, the, the, the Democratic Republic of Congo, for a ratio of one in eight Christians worldwide facing persecution. Last year, 40 nations scored high enough to register very high persecution levels. This year it reached 45. 219 features something they call Asia rising as India entered the top 10 for the first time. China moved from 43 to 27. They're trending upward. That trend continues as two in five Asian Christians now face high levels of persecution that's up from one in three as the previous reported period. You'll just have to go back and, and hear this again. China's crackdown on both state-sanctioned and underground churches and its growing surveillance network added 16 million to open doors tally of Christians facing physical persecution. A Chinese pastor, his name is, his name is, um, Jian Zhu. He said, and I quote, the persecution of Christians is the worst I've seen since 1979. The conditions are horrific in some places. Murder, imprisonment, Detention. I'll give you words called re-educational centers. You don't know, you don't want to know what that means. You can't imagine those conditions. And we sit here in this beautiful place wondering what's going to be for lunch. I'm not faulting us only if our gain causes us to complain or relax or become complacent. I'm not faulting us only if our gain is not counted as dung. I'm not faulting us only if what we have is for our benefit and not for the kingdom. Only if our gain strips us of our cry. I'm sorry if some of you are wondering what this is all about. All I can tell you is that the trial of your faith works things that the miracle by way of faith cannot. All I can tell you is that the very best letters you'll ever write won't come from the mountaintop perspective. They'll come from the loneliness, brokenness, and suffering when you're in prison and you're alone. I'm not the guest speaker today. I'm a reflective and burdened under shepherd standing before you and I'm burdened for our church. Because Bible study used to be the greater part of our churches. Prayer times lasted longer than they do today. Fellowship with all the saints was where we wanted to be. Saturday outreach meant canvassing neighborhoods, knocking on doors, putting pieces of paper on folks' doorknobs. They were called tracks. Does any of the young people know what a track is? They were invites to church or messages about the gospel. That was our life. If you got offended back then, there was no option except to forgive and get it right. We used to work out our problems, our relationship problems, sitting on the floor at the altar, not in the office of a pastor. We certainly didn't work them out on Facebook. 
But you got options now to vent. We didn't have those options. The church schedule dictated our vacations, which were few. Most of our vacations happened at camp meetings, our revivals, our youth camp. And speaking of revivals, they were heavily attended. Today in most of our churches, all the pastors talk to me about this. Pastors can only really get about 30% of their people for a four-day revival. Most people won't come on Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. Most of our special services attract other members from other churches than our own. The gain and the getting has created a loss of hunger. Uh, I know that we've been cultured by false preachers and false prophets. I know that. I'm sorry about it. TV preachers and celebrity pulpits say that loss is not of God. As if God only gave and never took away. Surely they never read the book of Job or Hosea or even Paul's letter to the Philippian church. They're so out of context. They never saw the crafting of the book of the Philippians in a place of despair. So what about these losses of your life? Perhaps perhaps it was the loss that saved you more than anything you ever received. Maybe the losses of this life have kept you. The gain might have ruined you. The losses, as painful and bewildering as they might be, perhaps are the only vehicle to move you from this temporal existence to eternal glory. But the veil that covers our understanding, that thing which Paul describes as looking through a glass darkly, has caused us to bemoan our loss when all along it was the depletion that made room for prayer and the Holy Spirit. Perhaps those confusing and unreasonable losses were just enough to keep you saved. Only heaven knows gains and losses. Some gains might make you weak. Some offer you a false confidence, a false sense of security that rots away your soul. Like Samson, his strength was gained to him, but I never read a single prayer from him until he lost it all. When they beat him and gouged out his eyes, that was the moment he cried out to God. When he had strength, he also had uncontrollable lust. When he had strength, gifting, he also had a terrible attitude. When he could lift gates and carry them off and plop them down into a field somewhere. He also had disrespect for his parents. All of his ability, his supernatural gifting combined with his self-reliance caused him to ignore the elders of Israel. He had no one to speak into his life. Nobody with a veto power in his life. His physical advantages made him cast caution aside. It was only after he lost it that he considered the significance of his vow. Suffering caused him to seek the Lord, not success. The gain only blinded him from his purpose. God did not come into focus until he lost his physical sight and his strength. It did not have to be that way, but such is the case with gifted people. They often struggle with submission. They squander their standing in the kingdom as they seek to secure their own significance and reputation. Maybe you really won't start praying until your daughters are caught in the grasp of the world. Maybe your son's salvation won't really burden you until you realize 
that a good youth group and a great youth pastor could not replace what happens in your home. (laughs) Gains and losses, I see them so differently than I did when I was younger. I've lived long enough to watch the gain become a weight around the life of entire families. And conversely, I've seen the loss become the saving grace for other people, though they might struggle with that thought. Gains and losses too much too soon has been the undoing of the masses. Even the Proverbs said that young people are ruined by it because every victory has to be handled carefully lest respect and reverence are unlearned. Even still, losses in the wrong hands have made sweet waters bitter. Losses without perspective of God can make you angry. The balance of this life is more critical than ever before, and I'm burdened by our times and our church. I worry about people who treat their losses like God is judging them, and they'll never give thanks in their suffering. I wonder if you were chosen to represent the Lord before the congregation of people in your loss. You would not be the first to chosen to be chosen to suffer just to be a witness of God's love. I pray for those who are chosen to represent a sweet spirit in the face of adversity. These are hard sayings for most of us. The cup of gall is an antiquated drink to the modern church. But that is the cup that Jesus offers, gains and losses. I can tell you that losses become gains, but not in the sense that the carnal mind can comprehend. I struggle too. But I know that my losses make me relatable and compassionate. They connect me with a hurting world. They blanket me with mercy for others. I know I need so much of the same. They open my eyes to reach people, to do better for myself and for others, to love deeper, to forgive longer. If I treat my gains and my losses correctly, they can both work for me. But if I do not see them for what they are, then I will quickly turn from my appointment in the kingdom. If presented with the question, I suppose that I cannot tell you which needs to be managed more. All I know is that our pursuit to find Jesus is pressing on us like never before. Regardless of what season you are in life, our perspective of the Lord's plan is imperative, whether young or old. If it's gain, if you're in a season of gain, then I say to you, be humble, keep your head down. Health and beauty and gain won't last forever. If it's loss, if you're in a season of loss, I say to you, be encouraged, keep your head up. There is something working for you that may be beyond your thought. If you flounder or if you flourish, know that the Lord is still the Lord. He's still on the throne. And God is just as good as he was before because he is. And whatever you gain, you count as nothing. Just know that the knowledge of him is more than enough to keep you. Some things in your life will never go away. Because God knows that if he took those things away from you, you would not be steady or balanced. That's what Paul said. I prayed three times for this thorn to be removed from me. 
But the Lord knew, Paul said, he knew that if he took it away, I would be heady and high-minded. He just said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. I never heard that his strength is made perfect in my strength. My gain doesn't impress the Lord. It's my spirit in my loss that he's attracted to. <laughs> Say out of your mouth that you will love him no matter what you go through. Say that you will be faithful and true regardless of the sum or the rain. Do not be angry. Here, pastor, I am preaching a word to your life if you can hear it with your heart. Don't be angry about the sun that rises on the wicked. And don't be mad if the rain falls on the just and the righteous. It never means what you think it means. I'm thankful, Lord, if I gain. But I pray that I am thankful in my loss. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you can rise up in this house, when you get up to walk out of this room, if you can say, I don't know what's going to come today or tomorrow, but I know him, and that's enough. I know him, that's more than enough. All the things that I have, I count for loss. All the things that I've gained, I count as nothing. I don't know what you're going through or what you've gone through, but I want to say something to your spirit, to the inner core of your spirit. I want to tell you that if you'll worship him in the loss, you will become a powerful witness for people. They need to see what it's like to go through horrific marriage trouble and to go through cancer and to go through family trouble and to go through financial stress. They need to see the world needs to know what it's like for the Pentecostal apostolic to be living in extreme poverty and loving God I'm preaching about something internal you can't judge it by what you see on the outside you don't know what's in the inside there's something in the inside boiling in me so if you see my worship or my dance my clapping or my shouting they're not talking about, I'm not talking about my gain. Every time I'm dancing and shouting, it's not in response to something good that happened to me. <laughs> I'm praising God for what was taken from me. <laughs> oh. If all you ever do is shout when you get a pay raise, you'll just become a shallow Christian. If the only time you ever worship is when the doctor's report comes back in your favor, you're never going to be a witness and you're really not a part. You don't understand the kingdom. But when you lose or when you make mistakes or when you fail and you go to God... And you cry out to God. He starts to refine you. He starts to create something in you. <laughs> and when you're left, you'll understand the value of church. And the value of worship. The value is this. You have the knowledge 
of Christ Jesus, your Lord. Oh, oh, oh Jesus, wherever you are, I want you to praise God because you know him. I want you to thank God because you know him. I want you to worship him because you know him. I'm inviting you to offer thanks and praise, adoration because you have the knowledge of Jesus Christ in your mind. And the world is desperate to know what you know. They would just like to have a little bit of what you have. We don't even realize how precious this knowledge is. It's worth more than all the gold in the world. It's worth more than all the land. It's, just, it's more prestigious than all the royalty that ever existed. I say today, don't be proud of your cars made out of plastic. Don't boast in your, your homes made out of wood. You still have to have termite control. <laughs> Don't boast in your clothes. They're just woven together fabric. They didn't, make you, they didn't make you honest or pure. There's a robe of righteousness that the Lord is going to put on you. And you'll never want to wear anything in your closet again when you get there. He's going to give you a crown on your head. It's going to be better than every ring, every watch, every piece of whatever you've got, all your china. That crown's going to be greater than anything. It'll compare to nothing you've ever seen before. And the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So whatever you gain and whatever you lose, this is a hard saying. It's a hard saying, ladies and gentlemen. This is not easy for you. It sounds, it sounds good at the end. It sounds good. Oh, yes. But if you'll just make a statement to the Lord, this is where you've got to start. You say, I love you, Lord. I'm thankful if I gain. But I pray, oh, Lord, I'm thankful, Lord, in my loss. I'm thankful in my loss. And whatever I gain, I count as dung. I count as the, I count as, as the nastiest of all things. Because I have the knowledge of Jesus Christ, it really means nothing. So you can say it today. I have an educated mind. Maybe some of you can say, I have degrees. I've accomplished things. I'm a good debater. I'm blameless in many areas. Say whatever you'd like to say, as Paul said. But at the end, you just say, I count all of that as nothing. It's nothing compared to the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's nothing. It means nothing. It means nothing. It means nothing. Don't walk around and say, I'm proud of this. I'm proud. It means nothing compared to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's dung. It's dung. I count all things but loss. Come on, put in perspective your losses and your gains. I didn't know how to treat people that I had until I cut myself and lost people. I didn't know how to live with what I had till I lost part of what I used to have. It was the loss that helped me honor and respect the gain. The gain taught me nothing. The loss taught me everything. 
and the knowledge of Jesus Christ rose premier through it all. You may not get this. It's okay. I'm just standing here as a burden pastor for all of you and for myself and for a thousand more people that the Lord has commissioned this church to go reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ before he comes back. I want to go back house of hope and a house of healing where no one has a past. You know how hard that is? We got a model where no one has a past and everyone has a future. That sounded so good and we were doing so well. Don't ever lose that because if people walk in here and they don't have a past, it's because you decided to forget it. Jesus has no problem burying their, their sins under his blood. It's the church that has a problem. It's me. <laughs> oh, God, help us, Lord. I'm calling for everybody. If you can't be here today in your home, just stand right up right now in your living room at your table. Stand right up and open up your hands to God like this and just say, Lord, help me to put it all in perspective and then thank him. Thank you, Lord. Say, thank you, Lord, that I have the knowledge of Jesus Christ in my mind. Thank you, Lord, that I know you, that I know you. If I know nothing else, I know you. I know you. If I have everything or have nothing, I have you. I have you in my mind. I have you. Yeah. Oh, I feel it rising in this house. There's something deep inside. I'm looking for something deep inside now. This is not a thing. Hey, you might be praising right now. It does not mean that you have got it all together. It means that you know him. It does not mean that you've got gain. It just means you know him. Yeah, 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 yes, yes. I want to know you. I want to know you in power and in suffering. I want to know you in every aspect, Lord, of your earthly existence and your heavenly power. I've come to know you. I've come to thank you, Lord, that I have knowledge of you.